We live in a world with a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hurt in our world. And there's a lot of hurt in many of your lives. If we were to spend time this morning going around the room and sharing our concerns and our hurts, uh, real, deep, genuine concern and hurt. I mean, we could be here for hours just sharing, not even really comforting each other, but just sharing about what's going on in our lives. We'd be here for a long time. We'd be comforted by the fact that other people have trials and struggles and hurts and tribulations too. Not that we're glad that they're hurting, but right, it's good to know that we're not alone in this. But in our world with lots of hurt, we lack lots of hope. A lot of people is a better way of saying it. A lot of people lack hope. And whether your lack of hope or a person's lack of hope has to do with the, the situation of the world or the increase of godlessness all around us, disappointments in your own life, the struggles of aging, the struggles of illness, the struggles of learning, learning how to die well. People talk about dying, death with dignity. I'm going to die on my own terms, on my own schedule, in my own way. We take the role of God into our own hands. Whether you deal with the loss of a loved one or our own impending deaths. So a lot of times people, people numb themselves with any variety of ways, relationships, substances, busyness, distraction. It can be any, any number of things. And that doesn't mean that any one of those necessarily is an attempt to numb oneself. But without a Christian perspective on, on history and on, on the future of our life and the future of the world, there's plenty of reason to live without hope. Sometimes I've talked with people. I think I've shared something like this with you in the past uh, when I was a young adult and just thinking about growing and learning how to witness to people or share the gospel with people. Um, aside from just sharing my own story of salvation with them and how God's at work in my heart, like I felt like I needed something more. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we ask this question, you know, that's really hard. Um, do you know what's going to happen when you die? You know, but we also have to learn how to live with the situations that the sovereign creator has ordained for us allowed us to live in and so someone helped me understand a different question although that question do you know what's going to happen when you die is a good question uh, another good question maybe a better question depending on the context of the conversation is well that is incredibly difficult i'm not going to presume to know what you're going through how that feels unless i've gone through it myself how do you live with that? I mean, that's the question for those who are living that we want to ask something along the lines of, oh, that's excruciatingly painful. And, and I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how you're feeling. How do you live with that? To which some will reply, I don't know. I'm struggling. 
to live joyfully with this. I'm wrestling with it. Okay. But as Christians who understand history and, and the future of the world and the future of eternity, if we can speak about eternity with a future, we have plenty of reasons. We lack no answer, friends, brothers, sisters. We lack no answer for how to come alongside people who are grieving. In particular, in our passage this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, the apostle is encouraging believers who are grieving or are at least tempted to be grieving as those who have no hope. And so he wants to encourage them. Essentially, he wants his people, he wants, God wants his people to stand apart as people of great hope in a hope-deprived world. God wants his people to stand apart as a people of great hope in a hope-deprived world. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Honestly, who rejoices in their sufferings? Well, Paul and Christians, uh, to bring in a thought from Philippians, oh, we have a lot to cover today, so I have to kind of stay on task. So I'm gonna, you're going to find me wrestling to want to go other places today too, but you know, he learned the secret of being content. And, and I would say it would not be too far afield to say we learn how to rejoice in our sufferings. But he says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing this is how we learn to do this, that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope, which is a confident assurance of things to come or a confident assurance of the reality that what God says is true and we're banking our life on it. Hope, this confident assurance does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Sometime later uh, in, in uh, Romans fifteen thirteen, he prays, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing Knowing the truth and believing critical components that work together and cannot be separated. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember who has been poured into your hearts, you may abound in hope. You may abound in hope. You ever seen somebody run up a long race or I remember uh, in high school, uh, doing two a days and three a days for football, and by the end of those three a days and two a days even, uh, but especially by the end of the week, we were like dragging just to finish the work, the exercise, the drills. This is not the picture of Christians who make it to the end barely struggling to get across the finish line. This is a picture of people who abound in hope. We have so much hope in the truth of God and who he is and what he gives us in his word that we have more to give you. In fact, in the midst of grieving, and don't please don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying today to minimize grieving. The, the, the magnanimous amount of hope 
that God gives us, which satisfies our souls and allows us to walk through this world with joy in the midst of great difficulty, does not minimize the struggle. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the opposite is true. It's for the glory and for the joy of what's ahead of us that we are able to abound in hope. It puts everything in this life into perspective. And so the Thessalonian church had hope in Christ, but they were also confused. You might remember earlier in the letter uh, we're studying here, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians for their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, this is a letter of you're doing well, but I ask and I urge you to keep doing well more and more. This is not the picture of, of a father who's saying to his children, you're just not doing enough. You've got to do more. No, this is the picture of a father that says you're doing great and you're learning and you're running well. Keep running more and more, stronger and stronger. That's the tenor of this letter from the Apostle Paul. And so they they have steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus because they turned from their formal ways of worshiping idols Uh, the hopelessness of idol worship, to wait for Jesus' return from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. Because this same Jesus who delivers us, it will be the same Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's about verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. And so even in Paul's own lifestyle, his, his personal mission in life is to rejoice in their salvation. Because they are a gift to the Lord himself. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Isn't it you? How do I know that my life is worth it? Uh, To say it in a little bit more of a minor secondary sense. I I know that the work I'm putting forward in gospel ministry is worth worth it because I see you growing in the faith. And that's an encouragement to me. That's fuel for my fire. Hope is a big deal. Physicians tell us that hope improves a person's immune system. It lowers levels of anxiety and depression. It helps you choose healthier behaviors even. Right? Now I understand I'm, I'm simplifying a vast topic here. But it's true. But hope must be placed in true realities. Hope must be in truth. Otherwise, those who place their hope in something that just makes them feel better for the day will find one day that they are sorely lacking. That they've been tricked by the enemy and by those who market the schemes of this world. Another false certainty would be a hope about exactly when Jesus will return. Right now, I don't mean a hope that Jesus will return, but a false hope in the idea that we can know when he will return. I remember as though it was yesterday in 2011 when Harold Camping predicted the date that Jesus was going to return. I was a youth pastor, and I remember people selling stuff. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, Jesus said nobody knows. That includes Mr. Camping. And he's been here before. And others have been here before. Don't do it. 
I saw people sell stuff. I saw people quit coming to church. Like of all things. Jesus is coming back. Who needs church? Everybody. They quit coming to church. People who were regularly apart. Not a lot of people, but some. And I remember having conversations for hours on end. We would look at the Well, yes, but I believe that God has told me that this is what's going to happen. I'm like, but that's opposite of what the Bible says. But it's what I believe. Well, I tell you what, if somebody believes something and they're sure about that belief, that's called faith. And if they have faith that is in something that is opposite of the scripture, opposite of the word of God, you will not move them. Beg God to rend the heavens. Conversely, and very positively, when, brothers and sisters, you and I have faith in the deep, rich truths of the Word of God, you will not be moved. Now, to be sure, and this is the point of this passage, we need one another to help each other in this. What's important is to hope in what God instructs us to hope in for the right reason and with biblically warranted expectation. In other words, Jesus will return. And while the day and the hour are unknown, and even the order of some last thing as events take place, that they're pretty hotly debated among faithful believers. Some believe that if you're a real genuine Christian, you've got to believe it unfolds this way. And I would just say rubbish to all of that. What we need to do is be men and women who who pursue understanding God according to his word with faith in what he shows us in his word in a way that that uh, that aligns with the entire scriptural narrative. And where there's room for conversation and debate, brothers and sisters, we we treat one another with charity, with love. And we debate and we discuss and we open the scriptures and we help sharpen each other's men and women who know the word of God and are knowing the word of God even more. But even while they're debated, some of these events, the fact of his return and the importance for a believer's hope of eternal life to borrow from Titus 1, 2, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. This leads to us actively waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Cornelius Venema said it well. He said the return of Jesus is the great centerpiece of biblical hope and expectation for the future. And so with this in mind, read with me in 1 Thessalonians 4, where we see, and I want you to catch these first few words here, Paul's pastoral concern Paul's pastoral concern for believers who were discouraged and who were being deceived. Second Thessalonians one, one through two tells us maybe by people who are even pretending to be Paul, Paul and Timothy and Silas. So here in this passage, we'll see Christ's promise to return comforts grieving Christians, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers or brothers and sisters about those who are asleep. That was a euphemism for those who have died. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
You see the foundation he's building? Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died before we have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, while my sermon title covers the topic, the main point covers the the command to encourage one another. And that's this. Help one another grieve with hope as those who have confidence in Jesus' return Uh, in Jesus's promise to return for his people. Let me read that again. Help one another grieve with hope as those who have confidence in Jesus's promise to return for his people. Now, uh, Cheryl, my family's going to be on vacation this week and been spending some time with Johnny good brother and friend who's going to preach next week and he's been working hard on his message and you'll be blessed by it Uh, but when we were talking this week i said you want to try to get your main point down to about 10 words eight if you can so do as i say not as i do (laughs) because it's going to get worse a fuller way of making this main point is this Because there's so much that's wrapped up in it. Christians are to help one another grieve the loss of beloved Christians in faith by resting in the certainty of Christ's return because he was raised from the dead and we have his word. And all of that is right here in this text. Some in this Thessalonian context, uh, some were confused that those who had, had died, they weren't sure what had happened and they were getting mixed messages from the world and had begun to forgot some of the promises of God's word. That since before the ages, before the beginning of time, God promised that he would come, that he would return for his people. Now, some wrongly assume also that that this passage means something like Christians shouldn't grieve at all. But that's not true. That's not what he's saying. Jesus grieved when Lazarus died. He wept. Elsewhere, Paul encourages Christians to weep together amid the trials of life. For believers, listen, death does not have the final word. God always has the final word. And when Jesus had given his life on Calvary to pay the full penalty for your sin and my sin, not one drop of wrath remains for those who are in Christ, who have repented of your sins and trust Jesus alone by faith for the forgiveness of your sins. He accomplished it all on Calvary and he died and he was dead. Physically, he was dead for three days. And on the third day, he rose again. 
by the power of God. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, this is how you know you can walk in faith. This is how you know you can obey God. You have resurrection power in you because the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who has poured his love into you through the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit in you, a guarantee, uh, I mean, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So we are able to live in faith because Death doesn't cause a separation between us. I'm sorry, death does cause a separation between us and those we love. And so it naturally produces grief. And so grieve and grieve strongly. Sometimes uh, when I have the privilege of spending time with families who are grieving in the, in the face of a, a loved one's death, you know, a lot of times people, they'll be crying and they want to collect themselves. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Don't apologize. Like, don't try to put it together for me or anybody else who cares about you. Your grief is actually a wonderful sign of the love that was shared. Grief is good. Now, a whole bunch of other stuff comes in there with grief. Grief can be confusing because relationships are complex and relationships are imperfect and relationships are confusing. But grief is good, especially grief that looks to Jesus for hope. And so he says here, grieve, but with a different kind of grief. And here's what he anchors it in. Belief and truth. He says, believe the truth so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Believe the truth so that you don't grieve with others who don't have hope. You might have heard the expression, facts are friends. That's usually in the context of someone who's trying to grow in a particular area. But they just don't want to look at the reality that's staring them in the face. And so someone will say something like, Hey, man, listen, I want to encourage you. I want to help you out. Facts are your friends. In other words, in order to make the right decisions going forward, you've got to understand what the real situation is. Otherwise, you're operating on false data. And if you're operating on false data, you're going to make a wrong conclusion. Or at least if you make the wrong conclusion, it's going to be based off of false you know, data points, if you will, and you're going to get to the wrong place. In other words, if somebody is having difficulty with their finances and, and they keep saying like, oh, we're doing everything we can. <clears throat> There's always more, almost, almost always more. We're doing everything we can and we just can't, you know, we just can't figure it out. We just can't get ahead or we just can't get caught up. Somebody might say, well, what I want to encourage you to do is this month, I want to encourage you to track every dollar you spend and every dollar of income that you get. Just track it all. Don't try to, this month, don't try to make decisions aside from the obvious low hanging fruit, Right? This month, record the data. What do you spend? What days do you spend it on? Where do you spend it? And then in a month, we'll prayerfully evaluate it. And some things will probably just surprise you and jump off the page. Because where you thought, oh, I thought I was only spending this much, you'll find, oh, I was spending this much. You're like, whoa, Pastor Matt, you sound like somebody who knows what he's talking about there. Maybe. 
I've been there on both sides of that conversation. I'm like, I don't want to write it down because then I'm going to know what it is. Well, if you want to change it, write it down and allow the Lord to reveal what needs to change. So facts are friends. In other words, believing the truth really matters. And so you need to know what the truth is. You need to know what you're believing. Are you believing what is true or are you believing what sounds good but is false? Something that sounds close enough to true but is a lie put together by the enemy and the world system over which he rules and you've bought into it. What are you believing? And maybe it's a mixture. And so he's saying, I want to help you not be uninformed, which means I want to help you be informed, brothers, verse 13, about those who are asleep. I mentioned that that's a euphemism for those who have who have died. Now, there's there are a whole lot of topics I, I want to cover here, but I can't. But I'll just make one point and just say. The body sleeps in death. But the soul. Is with the Lord. There is not an intermediate state. Nothing else can happen in the after one has died in order for us to assist them in some way to heaven. When you've died, your soul is with the Lord or with the Lord in his grace or with the Lord in his judgment and wrath. The body sleeps significant theology about the body. But here he says, if you're uninformed, you'll respond like the rest of the world. You'll grieve with despair. You'll grieve with a sense of hopelessness. And so this two-part solution, I've said it a few times already, understanding the truth in the sense of the message of the truth of the gospel. But I would almost put in parentheses there, understanding the truth, capital T, who is Christ, who is life. But that's where we move from understanding the truth to believing the truth. You can know all of the facts that you want. You can believe as much, excuse me, you can know. I, 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 in fact, I love the stories, Rosaria Butterfield and Charles Colson and these people who set out to prove the Bible wrong. They understood the facts of it, but it never made it to their heart, never made it that 12 inch journey from their head to their heart. And then as they set out to prove it wrong, The Holy Spirit came upon them and illumined their eyes and their minds and their hearts to believe the truth. In order to believe the truth so you might not grieve as others who don't have hope, you've got to know it. And so Paul starts with the truth of their confession of faith. We see it in verse 14. For since we believe, right? He's making this assumption based on their profession of faith. It's what Paul does in Romans 6 when he challenges people and more and more. You can walk in Christ. You can walk in obedient, faith-filled, or in faith-filled obedience. Since we, you, and me, and Timothy, and Silas, Silvanus, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, who have died. He says similarly, but in much more detail in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, have, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. In other words, if the dead aren't raised, my whole life's purpose is a waste. That's a huge if. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In a phrase, as those who are lost in our world say, I'm glad your Christianity works for you as a crutch for you, but I don't need it. They'd be right. But they're not. I love that word. But. But in fact, truth, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have not fallen, who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For is as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. This is like when we talk about giving, we say we give out of the first fruits of our of our income. And so if I make, you know, a hundred dollars, I want to give ten bucks right out of the gates, out of the first fruits of what I have. And then I look at my bills and I say, Okay, now what do I have to live life with? That's the idea of first fruits. Christ, the first fruits or the first fruit. He was raised first of those who have fallen asleep. Let's see here. I've lost my place here, but that's okay. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That includes those who are asleep in the Lord who have died physically in the Lord. Then those who are living. Then living Christians will be caught up with him. More specifically, how's it going to take place? Well, I'm going to kind of breeze through this. Verses 16 and 17, I'm going to put this on the screen, but I'm not going to read it exactly as it is. Jesus will descend from the sky the first part of 16 tells us, and then it tells us a three-part activity that will happen. He will give an assembling shout or a cry of command with the voice of the archangel who will cry out and with the trumpet of God. Then the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are asleep will rise first. Then living Christians will be caught up with him together with the Lord and these previously deceased believers in Christ alone for for their salvation. And both those who have died in the Lord and those who are living and who are caught up with the Lord will be with the Lord forever. Now, this is the heart of what Paul wants these believers to know. He's pastorally. Remember, I focused on this at the beginning of my message. This is a pastoral letter. It's a pastoral comment to these believers. He's coming alongside of them. He's encouraging them in their faith. And he's, he's focused on what their need of the moment is. They're discouraged because they're confused about what happens in the end. 
So I'm going to make the main thing the main thing and focus on the fact that they need to have their hope set on Christ according to his word. He's focusing on the healing balm of truth for Christians who were, in their case, deeply fearful. He's essentially saying, don't be afraid. Believe God. And understand what God says about this. And so Christians, you and I are to help one another grieve the loss of beloved beloved Christians in faith by resting in the certainty of Christ's return because he was raised from the dead and we have his promise. Let me just, if I may, have an aside. Thanks. When we're in glory, you know, we're going to know each other. How, what's it going to look like? I have no clue. But we'll recognize each other at some level, but as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll recognize Sherilyn. I imagine see her real fondly, but in heaven, she's my sister in Christ, no longer my wife, because marriage is for this time alone. The reason I say all this is to say this. The beauty of heaven is Jesus. And may I, as tenderly as I know how, from the moment that children are young, teach them to hope in Jesus. Please don't teach them to hope or to place their hope that they're going to see their grandma again. And don't misunderstand. I don't mean that it's wrong for us to, to, to realize we're going to see people who've gone before us again. I mean, essentially, that's what he's saying here. Don't be discouraged. You're going to see them again. And it's good because they're going to be raised first with the Lord and then you and we'll be together with the Lord. But it all centers and culminates in Christ. So you might say something like one day. As you trust in Christ, you'll see him again. But how much more wonderful it will be to see the Lord. You see what I'm getting at? I'm not saying don't encourage people that they're not going to see their loved ones. What I'm saying is make that a step along the road to what true glory is. Who is Jesus? Now I say that to those who I know in this room have lost loved ones. So again... We look forward to seeing those who have gone ahead of us or who will go ahead of us in the Lord. But even seeing them, even being reunited with them will be some mysterious joy that I don't know how to put into words that says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Oh, this is so wonderful. Look, let's worship him together. Because seeing Jesus is who will bring great hope great confidence, great peace. And I'll just say, if I said that in not the right way, I, I am sorry because I, I want to convey that marvelous truth in a way that's sensitive. Because you're not wrong for wanting to see someone who's gone before you. That's not wrong. But it's not the end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the one who satisfies 
in every way. The main point of this six verses is help one another grieve with hope by reminding one another of God's word. That's what he's getting at. Listen, if you walk away from here saying, I know the order of how these things are going to go and here's what I know and here's how this is going to work out and here's my chart, you will miss the point. Uh, To be fair, we haven't gotten to chapter 5 yet. But this is a section for Paul. Right? He begins with, but we don't want to want you to be uninformed. That's a transitional statement. And he ends this section with, therefore, because of what I've said, this section, encourage one another with these words. That's the command or what we call the imperative. Encourage one another with these words. What words? What I just said to you. We talk to our kids about the task at hand and, hey, I want you to go do this job and I want you to do it this way and blah, blah, blah. And and then they kind of look at you like, who am I kidding? I say this to my wife. What did you want me to do? (laughs) She's gracious, usually. Always gracious. Did you hear anything I said? Um, Anything? Yes. How to stitch it together? Maybe not. Paul's saying, with what I've just told you, with what I've just stitched together for you, take this. Know it factually. Believe it. Because it's only in believing that you're any good to one another to encourage one another to grieve with hope. So that's the takeaway. Encourage one another with these words, with words. I don't remember who it was, but he wrote a little book called Take Words With You. And the idea was taking scripture with you when you get away with the Lord. But to to build it out, uh, I'll say pastorally, but even more than pastorally, the, the priesthood of believers where every believer ministers God's grace through God's word to one another and to the unbelieving world. Take words with you. Take the word of God with you, with your personality, with your loving care, with your acts of service. Take God's words, God's promises, God's hope with you. Because if all we do is help and love and serve and we're void of God's word, we do nothing for people who desperately need the message of the gospel because they need the person who is truth in Jesus. Wonderful words, John 14, one through three, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Oh, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Paul gets at the heart of the gospel in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 11, which we're going to, I'm going to encourage you to read later. I read the middle of the chapter earlier, but read that whole chapter later. Other biblical truth, take it with you that declares God's truth that when believed brings comfort to the grieving soul. I need you to hear me carefully. I'm not saying that when you take the rich truths of God's word to someone who is grieving, you'll fix their grieving. It's the wrong goal. It's not the goal. Grief is good. 
we don't want to unintentionally make people feel like they're grieving like some kind of sin because they're grieving because they've just lost someone that they deeply love. No. The relationship's good. The pain, it's awful because it speaks often of something good. Even fraught with the confusion of human sinful relationships, even when two people who deeply love Jesus. So it's confusing. Don't try to fix it. Walk with them. And often we talk about the ministry of presence, and there's a point for that. But also the ministry of presence with God's truth. Now that doesn't mean an insensitive quoting above a Bible verse with sort of a, you know, all things work for good. Well, all things work for good is a really deep, rich, biblical truth, friends. But like a physician who carefully administers the right dose of the right medicine in the right time, we bring God's word with wisdom and love. We, we bring God's word in, in a winsome way, not trying to be creative, but wise for the opportunity of the moment. That's why Ephesians says uh, the positive of don't let any unwholesome talk come in your mouth, but only that which is profitable. So what word from the Lord can you bring that's profitable for the moment? Those who've died before us, they'll be caught up with the Lord. So be encouraged. Grieve. Grieve with hope. We don't know the day, the hour. We don't know when he'll return. We know it'll be like a thief in the night. So be ready. I mentioned everything happens for a reason. Christian friend, be cautious, especially if you know the scriptures really well. The application of the scriptures are important. We don't walk around as people with platitudes on billboards. I will tell you that social media has some good okay qualities about it but i see so many platitudes devoid of the richness of truth contained within them and it's no wonder it doesn't seem to bring comfort or hope not because god's word is lacking but because there's a care with which we administer god's word which we carry it to people. We see the wound and we ask the Spirit what, what balm it needs. We pray and sometimes we just sit while at other times we say, can I just share a scripture with you that's been so, so helpful to me? And I've had people tell me no. Okay. My visit's not purposeless at that point. 
So I wait because the Lord's in charge. The Spirit is working. Also, there are many times that I bring truth without quoting the reference. I just quote God's words. Maybe I translate them into their life. Christian, God has given us his word, all of it, every page, every word on every page to encourage one another about his return, about the truth of who he is, about grieving deeply, grieving meaningfully with hope, not despairingly. Because we live in a world with a myriad of other falsities. But even beyond this topic, we we have a word of God filled with a myriad of other truths with which to encourage and comfort each other. This is God's word. This is God's complete word. This is God's sufficient word. It is enough. To walk alongside people, to bring the truth of God's word, to bring healing in their life. God brings the healing. We bring the word incarnate in the person of ourself who God is working through when we are surrendered to him. So encourage one another in his words, patiently and thoroughly and with joy.